0: 1 Samuel chapter 21, we have the continuation of the story where David is on the run. We saw last week uh, that David has been escaping Saul. He's been making his way um, into an area that is he would believe to be protecting him from Saul. David has been the last week we saw kind of perhaps beginning to manipulate things a little bit. We see kind of the first uh, bits of David char- David's character that uh, begin to show us that he isn't, you know, this grand hero of the story perhaps, that he does have these flaws and he does make these uh, foolish decisions and that he does act as a sinful man. And, and I think it's important for us to, to make that Um, recognition because it's easy for us to look around at, uh, you know, the things in this life, the prominent people in our lives, the prominent people that are lifted up by culture and society, the prominent people that seem to have great accomplishments and to, uh, you know, really give them more, uh, more credit than they are due. And if you think about it, if it if you if you uh, reflect upon these things, uh, you realize that although although uh, there are people in the world who have accomplished great things, who have done great things, uh, when we think about it in its truest sense, it's only by God's grace that those things have been able to be accomplished, that they've only been able to uh, be done because God has. Equipped and enabled, he has opened doors and, and led people down these paths to accomplish things that although they believe they have earned and that they have worked for, it's really all due to his work, his equipping, his ability to provide what each person needs in each day. And he's working all things together for his good, for his glory, and and that we might know him and enjoy him more and, and all things that he has. Uh, going on throughout the world are ultimately there uh, working in concert to help us realize that he is the only one that can satisfy us. Whether you step into uh, your week on Monday and you are coming as a student and you're putting in the work there, whether you are moving out into your work week as, uh, with your, with your uh, perhaps career, those, uh, those things that you step into, you are stepping into those things by God's grace. You're stepping into those things because God has enabled you to do so, and he has uh, directed your path to put you in that position. And it's our job as his people to recognize his sovereign hand at work in our lives at all times because it grounds us, it roots us in how we ought to live in culture and society. Because we begin to give ourselves too much credit. And when we do this, we end up in a similar situation as David does, where he finds himself manipulating things on the run, trying to make things happen for himself, giving himself perhaps a little bit too much credit here. But we find that one of the things with David, we're not going to get into it this week, but next week, you'll find one of the things with David is that. Although David does make a mistake here, the thing that separates him from Saul is that David is one who repents. He, he's he's different. He doesn't go his own way and say, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, shake my fist at whoever's challenging me and tell them, you know, no, I really have done this work. I've got here. You don't know what I've been through. David doesn't make that argument. He recognizes that he has been through hard times and difficulties, but he also recognizes that the Lord who has Uh, balanced his life, who has brought him through seasons of hardship and difficulty. It's the Lord who has sustained him each step of the way. Much different from Saul. And so as we come into the text this morning, as we look at the life of David and the life of Saul contrasted against uh, each other, you should recognize that it's your job to see God's hand at work in your life. And you can come down Uh, you know, with this recognition in the similar sense that Saul did. And you can try to convince others and tell everybody about how difficult it's been for you and, you know, how many hours you've, you've put in and what you've sacrificed to get here. But ultimately, you know, that is a position that is resulting in your own efforts and your own glory. And it robs God of what is rightly due to his name. Or you could come the route of David where you perhaps have made that mistake in the past, where you've given yourself too much credit, you've given others too much credit, but now it's time to repent. Now it's time to recognize that, you know, maybe I was uh, thinking too highly of myself there. Thinking too highly of myself. Thinking of that I'm too wonderful there's a psalm, uh, one of the shortest psalms. It's probably like 131 or something off the top of my. Head, I don't remember, but but there is this idea there where uh, the psalmist is telling Israel, you know, you ought not to think too highly of yourself. And and the the refrain that follows that is to Israel, and it says, "Oh Israel, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord." from this time forth and forevermore, to move forward into this attitude of trust, that recognizing that he is the one that's worked. You've not accomplished this. It's the Lord's faithfulness. And so as we come into the text this morning and we look at this short exchange, we see that it is God orchestrating these things together in the midst of David's foolishness, in the midst of his folly. Uh, And perhaps, you know, we'll get into the nuances of it a bit next week, but perhaps bringing conviction in the middle of this scene and working these things together for uh, David's good, for his escape, and for God's own glory. And so we look at the text this morning and we see David escaping from, uh, he he kind of leaves this area in Nob, a temple where he was at with uh, the priests uh, there, Ahimelech, which, side note, this is going to kind of get confusing because if we get to next week, we're going to have another mention of Ahimelech, which is not like the same guy. It's kind of more of like a title. Uh, we'll get to, we'll extrapolate that a little bit more next week, but don't get too fixated on the name there. Ahimelech, Abimelech, it starts to get real crazy. Okay, so just, just stick with me here. Uh, just a little, little precursor so you're not confused next week. Uh, but as we come into it, we see that David is leaving this uh, house of the Lord here in Nob and he makes his way as uh, escaping, he, as he realizes that there is this guy Doeg and Edomite, a servant of Saul, and he's like, I got to get out of here. Uh, he is given the sword of Goliath he asks to be armed and the the priest there produces for him of course this sword and he says you know the only thing the only weapon here is the sword of Goliath which which you have brought to us you're the one who's put this here in the first place and 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 i think for um, for us readers it's meant to help us realize that the lord didn't need a sword to rescue david and the israelites from the philistines previously it was david himself who said that this victory will show that the Lord saves not by sword or by spear. He saves by his own work. And so now we find David perhaps in this lapse of faith, in this position of weakness, in this position of desperation, really, asking to be equipped with the sword of the enemy. And it gets worse than that. We read in verse 10, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So David leaves Israel. He goes to the city of Gath, which is Goliath's hometown. So he's got Goliath's sword equipped with probably this super massive sword. He leaves in fear, running away, and he goes to the hometown of Goliath. He goes uh, to the land of the enemy. right? If you're on the run, You don't go hide with the enemy. Like, what's going on here? This is getting crazy. David is wearing the sword of this champion who he has uh, killed himself. And now he goes into enemy land. Okay, so one, we're told there is no sword like this, right? That's what David said. So maybe if you're going into, like, an area where you're trying to be undercover, don't have, like, the flashiest, largest weapon, like maybe like this is like a little tip there like don't do dumb stuff like if you're trying to be covert like don't come in with a parade uh, but 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 David this shows you really how desperate he really was that he would go and take a risk he's so afraid of Saul he's he's knows he's on the run here and he's so desperate that he's willing to go to the land of the enemy and go to the land of the enemy with a recognizable weapon like what is happening. Things are falling apart here. Now, David, of course, he hopes he's not going to be recognized, which, okay, maybe like you're going to keep this on the down low. I don't know what this weapon looked like, but it seems like this is going to be pretty difficult, but he hopes to sneak in. Maybe he just had it wrapped up and maybe it was kind of, you know, traveling with him and people couldn't see it. Maybe he wasn't armed. Maybe it wasn't on his person. Maybe it was just, you know, he was traveling alongside it and it was with some other things so you wouldn't notice it. But either way, David hopes to be in enemy territory and to not be recognized, okay? Right? It's a different time, a different age than our current situation where Everybody knows what everybody looks like. Perhaps a great many of the uh, Philistines didn't know what David looked like, so perhaps there's some, you know, merit to his idea that he wouldn't be recognized. But he goes in uh, hoping he's not going to be recognized, and hoping that perhaps he might even find some sympathy here. You know, he's got nothing. He's probably looks pretty haggard, tired. Uh, he doesn't have. Uh, you know, his countenance isn't very bright. He's had to beg bread here from uh, the priests in Nob. And so he's kind of coming in weak, beaten down. But as he makes his way into the territory territory of uh, the Philistines, as he's in Gath, as he's in enemy territory, we find indeed that he is recognized, that he is recognized. Uh, They do find out who he is, and he is captured. Now, we don't have this recorded for us. It doesn't detail for us here in uh, chapter 21 about how he's captured. But we find that he is, in fact, captured. They recognize who he is. Pow, David captured by uh, the Philistines. No problem. And here's what I want you to see. Right? Here's what I want you to see. One, it's a bad idea to be in enemy territory. Bad idea to be in enemy territory in the first place. Don't do that. If you're in danger, if you're dealing with hardship and anxiety and worries and fears in your life, go to the fortress. Go to the strong tower. Throughout the scriptures, we're told that the Lord is a strong tower. The the Lord is our fortress. The Lord is our strength. We saw in just the, the previous Psalms that we studied... That This is the same confession that David makes. But here, David is, is so desperate that he has this lapse of judgment. He thinks, I've got to get out of here. i got to go to a place that is uh, a place where I can hide. And he goes to enemy territory. Now, here's what you need to know. If you are truly a son of God, if you belong to Jesus, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation... If you are somebody who is a Christian, if you recognize that you were dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses, and you couldn't save yourself, and you were this person who was living in this sort of way, and your life was falling apart, and you were dead, and Jesus came and rescued you through his perfect life here upon the earth, living in your place, going to the cross and paying for your sin, Shedding his blood for you. If, if you see that he has paid that price and gone into the grave and is raised by the Father on the third day for your justification, if you identify with that and you say, Yes, I believe that, then you are a new creation. And guess what? When when you are in the land of a bunch of dead enemies, something alive still stands out, even if it's just kind of like a little bit messed up there, even if it's sick, even if it's broken. A little bit there. When you have something that is alive standing out against a whole bunch of things that are dead, there's going to be a contrast. Even if you don't want it to be, even if you're trying to blend in with the enemy, there's no hiding. There's no hiding. Right? So you might, in times of, of, of hardship and we're in seasons of, of difficulty, think, you know, I'm going to go and take some, some wisdom from the, from the people who are around me. But I'll tell you that that is going to be a, a terrible mistake, taking advice from people who aren't living. Taking advice from people who are not alive. How you ought to live, how you ought to get through this season. That's a terrible idea. Two, two reasons. They're not alive, so they don't know how to give you advice about how to, to live. Right? You can't take advice from dead people, because they don't got a lot of good tips. They're not not making it, right? They're They're not keeping it together. So you need to come and be with the people of God. You need to cast your cares upon the Lord, we're told, because he cares for you. Dead people don't care for you. He cares for you. And so when you are going through a season of hardship and difficulty, don't go to enemy territory because there's nothing for you there. Now sometimes we're foolish and we think, well, you know, I'm going to be like David, I'm just going to go out there and see what's out there. I'm going to go and talk to some people. Maybe I've got coworkers or maybe I got family and you know, these people aren't Christians, but you know, they have some some years on them or they might know me very very closely and so like I'm going to, you know, put a lot of emphasis on their advice. They they can speak into it quite in a, in a quite nice way. And sometimes we make that mistake. We go and do those things. And we seek out wisdom from people who do not have godly wisdom to give to us. Right? People, if you let them speak, they're going to just share a whole bunch of stuff and they're going to tell you like, their opinion and what they think you should do. But it's not necessarily what, directing you to the Lord. It's not directing you to be satisfied in Christ. It's not directing you to die to yourself, to trust in Jesus. It could be telling you good things that you want to hear because they want to please you. They want you to listen to them. They want to feel valuable to you and to others. They want to be seen in a certain light. And perhaps you want to listen to them because you also want that uh, reciprocation. But it doesn't work because if they're not alive, they've got nothing to give. If they are not living, they can't help you. And a huge mistake that we often make is that we go into enemy territory and try to hide. And we try to get advice. But if you are truly alive, sooner or later there's going to be a problem. Sooner or later they're going to be like, I, I'm telling you what I think you should do, but you're not listening. And you will be exposed, just like David was. You can't hide in that territory because you're not not dead. You're not in the same mindset. So here's two points to be aware of. One, if you're there, you're going to get exposed. So you need, you shouldn't be in that territory to begin with, but you should, if you're going to be in enemy territory, you need to be explicitly, explicitly there on the mission of being contrasting. You're there to not fit in. You're there to not hide. You're there to stand as a contrast of what the truth of the gospel is as displayed in your life. So that's the only time you should be in enemy territory. You're out there on the offensive to show people what Jesus is really like. That's why you should be there. You shouldn't be there to receive care. You shouldn't be in enemy territory to be taking things that will you believe will contribute to your life because there's nothing to receive there. David makes this mistake. A terrible mistake. Because he doesn't belong there. And they call him out. They know, like, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And so now, David has to figure out some way to get himself out of this trouble. He shouldn't have been there in the first place. It was foolish for him to be there. He doesn't belong in enemy territory. We should never be in enemy territory. That's not a place for us to be. We should always be, if we're in enemy territory, you're there with the Lord leading the charge right ahead. That's it. That's the only time you're ever there. So don't go there for wisdom. Don't go there for care. Don't go there. All the lies and all the traps are there. Don't go there. David perhaps thinks hey, I'm going to come into enemy territory. Maybe they're going to, maybe they will recognize me, maybe they won't, but maybe they'll, maybe they're going to sympathize with my situation. Maybe they'll be like, hey, you know, I'm sorry, you're dealing with the hard times. We'll take care of you. We'll give you what you need. But there's the second trap. Within enemy territory, if you're foolishly there, sometimes the enemy will offer you things to keep you there. To give you a, a lacking version, a fake version of what you're really seeking to find and you can only find in Jesus. Sometimes you're in that territory and the enemy is so crafty that he will say, oh, you're hungry? Here's a little bit of food. But really you're eating like this poisoned food. You're eating this junk food, this thing that's so bad for you. When all the while you're looking for what David had just previously had, the bread of life. That brings a promise that he would not hunger. He's on the run, he's looking for more sustenance and to receive something that is lacking is go- it's just a trap. So when you're going through these seasons of hardship, when you're going through seasons of difficulty, when you're tempted to go into enemy territory, do not look for relief, okay? Don't look for relief. That, when you look for relief, that's how you get yourself into trouble. When you look to make things easier, that's 100% how you get yourself in trouble. At all times, and especially when seasons of hardship, if you aim at God's glory, if you aim at knowing and enjoying God, you will always get the relief that God intends for you to have. But if you focus on getting relief, you're going to end up up in enemy territory. It's a trap. Don't go. David hopes he's not going to be recognized, but he's captured. He's recognized. Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So David is there, he's captured, and here's what happens. He realizes that they know who he is. They get it, they understand, they're not confused. They know about him, so much so that they even know the songs. They're like, they were like... Israel was, like, dancing and, like, singing these David songs. Like, they got his anthem. They're probably, like, singing it, mocking him. Like, we got this guy. What's up? You know, David, He's he struck down his 10,000s. And they're like, yo, what are you going to do now? We got you. Right? And David's just like, oh, shoot. He knows that he's in trouble. Right? That's why it says David took these words to heart. Like, oh, I'm in trouble. I got to figure this out. I got to figure this out. Now, here's kind of a pivotal a pivotal moment. We'll get into this perhaps a little bit uh, next week. But when David takes these words to heart, I think on the on the face of it, we can understand that he realizes the implications of this. He realizes uh, the outcome of this. And I think here, what happens is that. David begins, he comes up with this plan because he's much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, we're told. He dealt with this in an intense way, and and we'll look at kind of a little bit of behind the scenes next week. But I think here, David takes these words to heart. He understands the practical implications. But I think that this is a catalyst to send David into the, the prayer closet. It's time for... To go, to go in and to go to war. He's going to take this in to the battle with him. He's going to approach the Lord here. I think that this is something where he's trying to figure out what to do, and who knows how much time he had kind of between these two things. But we find that the result of what David did next, it could be like something that is uh, similar to last week, where we were kind of like a little bit on the fence, like, this could be like a totally like foolish and weird thing to do and like bad. Or perhaps that this was directed by the Lord. <laughs> like maybe this was what the Lord asked him to do. We'll, we'll uncover a bit next week. But here's what does happen. He's afraid. He, he realizes the implication of them knowing about him. That he is this giant slayer. He is the champion of Israel. There's Saul... And then there's David. Now, one of the cool things about this is that the the people who capture him, they call him the king of the land. So it's like almost they're acting in this prophetic way to remind David of the promises of God. Like, bro, you're going to be king. Like, what's going to happen here? Like, Like, Saul is obviously the king, and they know that they haven't captured the king of Israel here. But they kind of are saying, like, we've got the king of the land which he's like not quite the king yet, but there's kind of this already not yet thing happening. And so we find that David, verse 13, changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. So David, upon being recognized, upon understanding, he... uh, takes these words to heart. I think he takes them into prayer and deals with this with the Lord and realizes like, okay, like now I, gotta, now I gotta like change some things to get out of this. And here's what he did. He changed his behavior before them and he pretended to be insane in their hands. This is the first thing that happens. Now, here's, he basically begins to act like a complete madman, like mentally insane is what, is what it's getting at here. Here's potentially why. One, uh, some scholars believe, and, and, and I think that this is credible here, that within the culture of this uh, ancient society, that those who were considered insane uh, or, or were mentally, you know, uh, I guess insane is probably the best way because there's a whole bunch of other categories, but insane were, were held in... A certain category where they are essentially protected by these certain gods of certain cultures. So it's like, okay, you're already being judged. And like this judgment from these gods are happening. And if we try to take away that judgment, then there could be a problem. So it seems like David's kind of like, hey, like this is a little, perhaps a little bit strategy here that like, I know that they can't like, they won't really do anything to like insane people. So if I act insane, then they're not going to do anything to me. So perhaps that's, one line of thinking here, uh, but beyond that, uh, his he uses this to bring about um, this change of behavior in two different ways. First, he does it with making marks on the doors of the gate. So he kind of is scratching at the doors. Uh, some scholars believe that he was writing out um, uh, with like like with his nails on the doors, like um, like curses from like those pagan gods that would kind of like attribute to like those uh, th- like sayings or things that would have been attributed to those pagan gods would have been bringing judgment upon the insane uh, and then beyond that he also lets uh, spit run down his beard right which seems like okay like yeah he's like an insane person drooling is like not that far off like the mark it's not that crazy like we could see that maybe it's a lack of awareness uh, about personal hygiene here. Perhaps that's what it, you know, uh, I think that's an easy understanding for us. But within, within these ancient cultures, uh, a beard was a hugely important symbol of manhood. It was a, a symbol that was connected to uh, your standing in society, your ability to, uh, to represent your family. It was kind of a mark of honor to have your your beard and so uh, here this would have been something that would, would you would never have accidentally let this happen you would have never done this on purpose like this only happens if if like you're really insane because it was a mark of shame it was a, it was something that that it would bring dishonor to to you and to your people and to your family and so nobody would do this intentionally. Like this is so crazy that like they would, they would think like nobody would ever do this. Right? Because there's a certain element of pride, especially if you're capturing Israel's greatest warrior. If you're capturing somebody who is, uh, you know, positioned within the culture and society of Israel that they, they would never even bring any sort of shame upon themselves. It's much different than how we operate here in our culture today. And so this would have been, like, the, you know, the absolute confirmation that, like, definitely David is crazy. <laughs> like, he's definitely insane. And so he, he brings out this behavior. It's brought out, you know, really for two ways. One, because God's people didn't see, uh, you know, Saul's behavior and hold him in check and be like, what the heck are you doing? Like, why are you chasing David? He hasn't done anything, and he's our greatest hero So this doesn't make any sense that you want to kill him. So God's people weren't listening to God. But then also, David has his own lapse of faith. He's the one who who acts out of his own character in which we're used to seeing him trusting the Lord. He goes his own way a bit here. And because of this, because of this, it brings this shameful behavior upon himself. David has to basically dishonor himself, he has to shame himself, he has to uh, humble himself, disgrace who he is, his name, before his enemies. I mean, like, that's like the worst. Like, it's one thing to, like, to, you know, uh, disgrace yourself before a bunch of people who really like you, and they're like, oh, no problem, like, you know, we we get it. But to have to do it towards people who hate you, it just even further, like, Uh, you know, brings shame unto your name. But David had to do this. He goes into this mode because he doesn't trust the Lord in this instance. He didn't trust the Lord. He dropped the ball. He saw the Lord's faithfulness to him in the past, but instead of trusting the Lord to take care of him, he grabs the sword of Goliath and goes to the hometown of Goliath and is captured and now is stuck. Verse 14. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So David, he humiliates himself. He acts insane before the Philistines, they bring him in and Achish the king. It's like, this guy is absolutely insane. Like, why are you bringing him to me? I don't got time for this. So much so that he says, like, i got enough crazy people around here. Like, I'm wondering, like, what the heck is going on in, like, in Gath, like, they got, like, a lot of insane people there or, like, like, what's happening? So perhaps the king was like, look, I'm interested in that this is David who, uh, you know, has defeated all our our armies previously, who has historically been at war with us, who has conquered us. And you would think that the natural, you know, uh, position would be for them to take revenge upon David, and I think that's what David feared. That's the natural position. But beyond that, David sees that he is... uh, Going to act insane so that way they one lay off him a little bit, but two, there's no fun in conquering somebody who's already conquered themselves, right? So in Akish's mind, perhaps he's also like, like, literally anybody could kill this guy right now if he's like this really this crazy. So it's not really like a challenge for us to defeat Israel's greatest enemy, and it would be like worse of us to say like. Like, it's, it's, it's worse for him if we just see that he's crazy and everybody knows that David's a crazy guy now than if we just kill him and then no, nobody knows, right? So he's, he's kind of perhaps weighing this out, like, we might as well just let this guy go. We might as well let him get out of here. And that's exactly what happens. David leaves. He's granted an exit from the city of Gath. But it's interesting because this idea of madness keeps coming back, (laughs) right? We saw this earlier, and David would have been familiar with this earlier because he was just in a position already uh, to play for King Saul. When King Saul was acting in this insane way, when he was acting crazy, when he was acting with this madness, David sat through it. David was, was somebody who, who was witness to this. And yet, King Saul, he was somebody who could have been in his right mind, but yet was thrown into this madness as this judgment from the Lord. Whereas David, here we see, a little bit of a contrast, because David has an actually sane mind. But yet he he is cloaked in this idea, this attitude of madness. He's cloaked in this uh, facade of insanity. And this, of course, uh, brings about his, his escape. But what this does for David is it It humbles him. It puts him back in a position, I think, where he can see how far he has fallen. That he didn't need to to cut himself down because the Lord was giving him this opportunity to humble himself To throw him into being seen as somebody who, you know, was disgraceful in his behavior. Who has fallen short. Who would be seen as an outcast in society. Somebody who would have not been respected. Somebody who had words that, you know, you wouldn't listen to. You wouldn't take orders from from somebody who's out of their mind. You wouldn't give your allegiance to David who is insane. But I think that's a little bit of what we're intended to see as much as we are wanting to see david as this immaculate hero who never makes the mistakes we find that even up to this point he has been built up again and again and again as like this amazing hero and now we have two back to back events where he has to uh, where he makes mistakes and and he sins and and he has to be humbled Where he has to come and throw himself wholeheartedly at the mercy of the Lord. And to recognize that it's only the Lord who can save him. It's only the Lord who can rescue him. I think that's what we're intended to see here. to shake up this little bit of of hero worship that we tend to fall into, that we tend to lapse into. Because with it, we're intended to also see, as this moves throughout the trajectory of Scripture, that this ultimately climaxes in the faithfulness of Jesus. That Jesus is, who's always referred to as, as, you know, the greater David. We're meant to see that David's failed, but the son of David has never failed. He has never let us down. He has never disobeyed the Father. In fact, it's Jesus who says I love to do the things that the Father asks. I delight in obeying the Father. And I think that as you consider the passage, we are likely to follow in the footsteps of David more explicitly than we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And I think that's just natural because we do get in cir- circumstances and situations where things start to get overwhelming, and it's like we react before we should react. When we when we should be waiting on the Lord to see what He wants to do, we decide we're going to move quickly. Oh, I got to get this done. I got to move here. I got to I got to react before somebody else takes advantage of me, or I've got to I've got to you know I've got to uh, counterpunch before something gets me. Right? There's some natural things that we have these knee jerks to. we're more likely to follow in David's footsteps. We're more likely to put ourselves in a position where we're going to, you know, have to come up with some crazy idea where we've got to be out of our minds. We've got to be insane to do the things we're doing and to, uh, you know, convince people that, you know, we're fine so we can get out of things. We, gotta, we end up trying to save ourselves. And I think Jesus knew that that we were going to be people who tried to save ourselves. This is why he came. This is why he came to rescue us. This is why explicitly we're told in Philippians 2 that Jesus came and humbled himself. Right? He came and humbled himself. He came as a man taking the form of a servant he he came as the lowest position not the highest position but what jesus did was he voluntarily humbled himself because he knew that we would involuntarily have to humble ourselves because we would exalt our positions and we would try to position and come up with our own facade to convince other people that we were worth more than, than they thought we were. That we would try to defend our identities. That we would have to be a people who are just doing all sorts of crazy things like David's doing. He knew we were going to do that. So he was like, I'm going to come and humble myself. Because I know you guys are going to get yourselves into trouble. I know you can't save yourselves. And he did this before we we ever needed that saving before we ever recognized that we were in trouble. He did this so we could see that that love was there. He reacted to our situation before we were aware of it. What care? What concern? Although Jesus humbled himself, we're told in Philippians 2, although he came in the form of a servant, we are also told that He was not out of his mind. He was not out of his mind. And we're told that we should have the same mind of Christ. Which, if you think about it, when we're asked to do what Jesus does, when we're asked to live how Jesus lives, the rest of the world looks at it and they think, that's crazy. Why would you consider others more significant than yourselves? That's what Philippians 2 says. What about me? I'm number one. I'm watching out for me. But Philippians 2 says, consider others more significant than yourselves. That's a backward statement in the world. If you start telling other people, stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about other people. Always other people first. They're going to look at you like, well, i got to take care of myself. They're going to look at you upside down. You live in a different world if you think I'm going to do that. It not just say consider others. It says more significant, more important. Like a lot of times we're fine with like, yeah, we'll consider other people. I'll think about them. I'm going to think about myself. I'm going to think about them. They're going to be out here. But the idea of significance is important. This is what Jesus is getting at. And so Jesus comes to the earth, lives in our place and he orders his behavior to think about us first. To think about us. That our greatest need is to be rescued from our tendency to move into this position of insanity. He says I'm going to rescue you from that. Now when he does that, then everybody else thinks he's crazy. Everybody else that upon the earth thinks he's crazy. What do they say about him? And Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark chapter three, he's there with his disciples and he's talking and like he's got these huge crowds and he's around and his family is like, We gotta go get him because he's out of his mind. They're telling like they are like Jesus is crazy. He's thrown in here with that same mindset. Like they think he's crazy too. But Jesus couldn't be more sane. What I'm getting at is this. You're going to have to be crazy. You're going to have to be crazy. And you're either going to have to defend yourself and do a bunch of dumb stuff because to defend your identity. Or you can order your life around the words of Jesus that said, Lose your life for my sake. Which is a crazy statement. Lose my life for your sake and you will find it. You see, he was willing to put his money where his mouth was. He was willing to say, I love you guys. I'm going to come and save you. He was willing to do that. And then he asks us to come and follow him in this journey as he gives us new life. He was willing to disgrace himself so that we might have that place of honor. It's precisely through his shame that we have honor. It's precisely through his work at the cross that we have entrance into his family. Do you think that it's an accident? Do you think that it's an accident that as they send Jesus to the cross, his own people, who he should have been the hero of, just like David should have been the hero of, do you think it's an accident that as they are dealing with him, That they come about to Jesus and they spit upon him saliva in the face, on the beard. And then they remove his beard. They pull it out, we're told. They disgrace him. His manhood, who he is, his honor, his legacy. You don't deserve that. You are going to be shamed at the deepest level. That happened... To Jesus, so that we might have life, so that we might not experience that shame, so that we might not be a people who have to live with a mindset of insanity, what we might not have to be enslaved to the world, to ourselves, to our own selfish desires, but that instead we can find, as Jesus says himself in John 10. Life and life abundantly. right? Just as we're intended to think about others more significantly than ourselves, he not only gives us life, but he gives us abundant life. More than we would ever need. And so we ought to obey the Lord and submit ourselves to him in every way because he's walked this road before us so that we do not have to put ourselves in a position of foolishness, of sin, where we have to end up acting crazy before the enemy. He was already humbled before the enemy so that we could have new life, so that we could have honor. But the question then is this, the question that it's connected to is then that we also then ought to be a people uh, who are living in a way that honors his work. Don't go into enemy territory unless you're going with the king. And so as you go out and live in the world, as you're thinking, as we started uh, the sermon, thinking about your, your calling, your vocation, your careers as you head out into the week tomorrow. You're going out into the battle ready to be equipped, ready to serve him, ready to know him. Are you doing that with intention? Are you doing that as a member of the household of faith saying, I'm here to let my light shine before men? Are you doing it in such a way that reflects the values of the kingdom? Or are you trying to hide among the enemy? You're going to be exposed. Don't try to hide. Let your light shine. Crush it. Go with Jesus into the battle. Don't go by yourself. Don't try to hide. But be equipped with what he gives you. Don't come on your own terms. Don't come with your own skills. Don't come with your own abilities. You didn't put yourself there. You didn't get yourself there. You're only there because he's allowed you to be there. He's going to help you every step of the way. And so we throw ourselves at his feet this morning thankful for his mercy, for his grace, for all that he's done on our behalf. That's how we respond together in worship. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your goodness and faithfulness to us. We ask that you would teach us to walk with you. Teach us to walk with you in seasons of hardship, in seasons of difficulty. Lord, teach us to walk with you when we are going through the valley and when we, are, when we are on the mountaintop when everything feels good and when things feel difficult. We know that you will be faithful to rescue us, to bring us home. Teach us to sl- trust you and to slow down and to let you, let you do your work in our lives. We don't need to be concerned or or stressed out by things, but we can rest in the arms of our Creator. Thank you for coming to the earth. Thank you for living a perfect life in our place. Thank you for receiving the punishment that we had should have received. Thank you for your resurrection. You're alive, making intercession for us even now. We look forward to seeing you face to face. We love you. Amen.